Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts today. And I'm Amanda. If my voice sounds familiar, it's from a previous episode as an author. I'm looking forward to coming on board as a host. Hi everyone, I'm Karen, excited for the seventh episode of the fourth season entitled Old World in New Ways. I'm Sashiella, also one of your hosts today. In this episode, two authors reflect on and, in their own ways, push back against the generational influences that try to shape their futures. So let's get into these stories. This story is by an author who's choosing to be anonymous. Anonymous is a young person who is still trying to figure out who she is. In her free time, she enjoys reading psychological thrillers, overanalyzing TV shows and movies, and wasting her time. She also only recently entered the literary world of creative nonfiction, and she is enjoying her time there. Let's take a listen to Anonymous's story entitled Heritage. The only boyfriend you're allowed to have is your husband, my mother would always tell me. But I never took her seriously. I just thought she was being an overprotective, overbearing mother. Nothing out of the ordinary. Every few months, though, she would bring it up and remind me. And every time we went to Russia, she would talk to my grandparents about what kind of husbands they were trying to find for me. For me, it was all background noise. I didn't care if I was allowed to have a boyfriend or not. I wouldn't have told her if I did anyway. Even though I didn't quite believe her, I always knew my mother was a bit more traditional than the average New York parent. We're Russian, but we're not really Russian. That's just the easiest thing to say when someone asks me where I'm from or what I am. My mother never lets me forget what we really are. We are Avar, she says regularly. But no one knows what that is. I didn't even really understand until I did extensive Wikipedia research about the Avar people. <sighs> We're an ethnic minority in Russia, but an ethnic majority in Dagestan, a southern region of Russia. According to the Wikipedia article, Avarians started out in the region of Khorasan, which included parts of Persia and Afghanistan. After years of war and conflict, Russia conquered the region. Some Avarians left, moved to Turkey or to Azerbaijan rather than living under Russia's thumb but many of them stayed to live in the region now known as Dagestan. The woman in the portrait in the Wikipedia article is wearing ceremonial garb, a red bodice covering a green shirt with fancy sleeves, a white scarf wrapped around her shoulders and covering her head. I never see anyone dressed like this anymore, not even at weddings. I want to love my culture. I want to love it as much as my mother or my father or my grandparents do. But for me, my culture is always just a reminder that I'm not doing something right. Avarsky girls don't dress like that. Avarsky girls don't act like that. Avarsky girls don't look like that. My mother reminds me every day, just like she reminds me that I'm not American or even Russian. I'm Avar. I know. Tell me who you are, she prompts. Yachokskaya I say, like clockwork. I resist the urge to roll my eyes, which is always a challenge. How important could my culture be if I had to be reminded of it every other day? 
I know this is just an effort for my mother to preserve our culture while living here in America, but forcing our culture onto us won't make us love it. Ever since I started college, she started getting more and more worried that me and my brother were being brainwashed and assimilating into a culture that was not ours. But this culture was also ours. I don't know how many times I've tried to tell her that we grew up here, that we spent all of it, our childhood, our adolescence, our teenager, our adulthood, here in New York, and that this was just part of our culture too. She couldn't relate. She didn't even want to come here, unlike so many other immigrants who are desperate to make a life here. But not my mother. She only followed my father, found a job in New York first, and the rest of us came after when I was only three. She would tell me how much she hated living here, hated living in Brooklyn, hated being apart from the rest of her family, hated all of it. We were the only ones here in America, while the rest of our relatives were spread out through Russia. Of course she hated it here. She grew up in Mkhachkala, and the Avar way of life is the only life she knows. For me, it is only something I visit in the summer. The closest I get is the mountain village my family originally came from. Chok is a town built on the side of a mountain. Seems like a place out of a time's past, with only fresh water coming from a communal hose in the town square. Me and my brother always had to run down the rocky hill where our grandparents' house sat and fill up the gallons of water bottles to use it in the bathroom and kitchen. We couldn't even flush the toilet without pouring a fuck ton of water from the bucket. The whole place smelled like farm animals and pasture, and if you waited long enough, you could see a cow pass by the town square. There's nothing to do there but clean and read. The most beautiful thing about the place was the mosque. It was right next to our house, so I couldn't see it from the window. But the call to prayer that sounded every few hours was peaceful in a way that it never was in New York. It fit right in with the empty town square and dense fog that floated in with the clouds across the old but stable houses that have been there for decades. At that high up, it's hard to distinguish between clouds and the fog when they were both obscured vision further than five feet away. Even though this is where my family originally came from, I knew it wasn't home for me. I'm a city girl at heart, and no matter how cute the cows were, I couldn't help but miss home. Back in New York, I would be getting up at 2 p.m. I would go out with my friends to the city where we couldn't go one block without bumping into someone. The air was damp and dirty, but it was the air that I was used to. We would sit on the steps at Union Square and watch all the people that were passing by. Sometimes there was a performance or art installation we could gawk at. What I missed most, though, was being with my friends. I missed Roma and her outlandish ideas and conspiracy theories. I missed Jade and her quiet sarcasm and her inside jokes. I missed Julian and his enthusiasm and colorful outfits. All the people in Dagestan looked the same to me, but my friends could not have been more different. <sighs> I'm going to move out and live with my friends as soon as I graduate, I said one day, casually. Graduate from where? High school or college? I don't remember, but it didn't matter to them. Because as soon as the words left my mouth, I lit what seemed to be a fire under my mother. What? Are you kidding me? You're not leaving the house until you're married, she yelled tightly in the way that parents yell at their kids when they're in public. I immediately knew to change the subject. I never brought up moving out after that. After living with my mother for 20 years, I knew which buttons I could press and which buttons were best left untouched. It was better to forget I ever said anything. My mom never forgot, though. Towards the end of high school, she started mentioning more and more often that I wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend, wasn't allowed to move out, and wasn't allowed to be an American. With every hint of the future that she had already planned out for me in her head, I became more aware of my helplessness. I wanted to rebel, but I knew how that would go. 
Usually my parents threatened to fly me out to Russia to marry a 40-year-old man who I could act like a good obedient wife for. And if it wasn't that threat, any step out of line was met with a never-ending rant about the kind of daughter I was. On those days, I wanted a reminder about everything I do around the house. How I clean up after everyone, even her. How every day I wash the dishes and vacuum the whole house and scrub the floors. But I knew to keep my mouth shut. <sighs> the first time my mother brought him up was when we were walking to the train station on a morning in March. She had just come back from two weeks in Russia. An insignificant reprieve considering the almost 20 years I spent living with her. That day was one of the few when me and my mother left the house at the same time to take the train. I always dreaded those days because I knew I had to pick my outfit carefully so I wouldn't set her off on another tangent about how I couldn't dress myself. I picked jeans that she bought for me herself so I knew she would like them and combed my curls back just a little bit to give the illusion of order before they sprung back into disaster. As we stood together on the train platform, she warned me before she asked me anything. I want to ask you something, and you need to promise to listen until the end, she said, which wasn't suspicious at all. It was too late, though, because the warning bells were going off in my head already. Like every other time, she said she wanted to have a talk, and I thought it meant that she finally found my Tumblr, even though she still needs my help using Facebook. I haven't had a Facebook in seven years. There's a young man I've been talking to, and he wants to talk to you and get to know you, she continued, as if the words coming out of her mouth made sense. It sounds like gibberish to me because I can understand the words individually, but when strung together, they made no sense. No, I said with a laugh so she couldn't hear the dread I was trying to disguise in my voice. My Russian, clunky, and spoken with a Brooklyn accent somehow was nothing like hers. I treated it like a joke, like this was a once-in-a-lifetime offer that she would never bring up again, but I already knew inside me that this was just the first step. When I got the first message from him, I panicked. I didn't even bother reading it, which wasn't that difficult considering my reading comprehension in Russian is trash. I confronted my mother when she came home that day, though, because I explicitly told her not to give him my number, and she had reluctantly agreed to not to. She fucking lied, obviously. So, I deleted WhatsApp. If he couldn't message me, then I couldn't respond, and the problem would go away, right? Yeah, right. My mother wasn't having that. Almost every day, my mother would bring him up. She'd remind me that Nariman was an engineer and he worked for a good company, how he came from a good Avarian family and how he even spoke English so I could speak to him comfortably. It doesn't have to go anywhere and he just wants to get to know you, she tried to convince me. It was like he was a contestant on that one wedding show she loved to watch on the Russian network and like she was his wingman. It didn't matter how stubborn I was though because she knew how to wear me down. She knew exactly how to harass me into submission. First, she started with sweet persuasion and pleaded with me to just do this one thing for her, to answer him once. She gave up on that pretty quick, though, because passive-aggressive, mostly aggressive, guilt-tripping is something she's best at. She invaded my room, where I couldn't escape her, and drowned me in an uncomfortable silence she'd built intentionally. I tried to tell her to leave me alone without actually saying leave me alone, because I was too disrespectful and completely set her off. But it didn't matter. I caved, eventually, like I always do. She made me re-download WhatsApp. I don't remember how I responded, but I remember insisting that we speak in English. If I had to talk to this 26-year-old creep, I should at least be able to choose what language we speak in. I messaged him once a day, and only once a day, 
because I couldn't stand to look at the lines of text on my screen any more than that. And every day, my mother would creep into my room after work with a mischievous look on her face, like we were going to sit and have a cute little girl talk about boys. Every time she asked what I said to him or how I responded, and every time she felt like that wasn't a good enough answer, and the air around me got tighter. My stomach would drop even lower, lower than I ever thought it could, and I would struggle to keep my voice steady. A few times, I fought with her about who I should marry or where I would live in ten years. Every day was another battle in which my mother fought for me to believe that she knew what was best for me better than I do. Please, Mom, I don't want to talk to him anymore. It makes me so uncomfortable. I would beg. She'd look at me softly, and for a second I thought she'd finally understood. But she'd go right back to the same excuses. The months that followed were unbearable. When she wasn't hounding me about him or fantasizing about my married life back in Russia, she was angry. She hated when I told her that I didn't want to talk to him, or when I told her that it made me uncomfortable. At one point, she ignored me for three days. I don't know what I did specifically to piss her off, but it didn't matter to her. My father and brother saw the way that she was acting, but never said anything. I weighed my options. The longer I stayed with my mother, the harder it got. At this point, there was no doubt in my mind that she would send me off to get married against my will if she had her way. But what could I do? Where could I go? In the worst moments, I thought of faking a suicide attempt. My parents thought I wanted to kill myself. Maybe they would finally understand. That wasn't a real option, though, of course. So I settled for running away from home. (laughs) When the idea first comes into my head, I don't think I'm capable. I was the one who had perfect attendance in high school and didn't lie to my parents when everyone else did, and the last person to smoke weed in my friend group. I wasn't the kind of girl who ran away from home. I try to do research. I read a badly illustrated WikiHow article on how to run away from home, as if that's going to give me the answers I need. It doesn't answer why my mother won't listen to me, or why she insists on, on me only marrying someone that she deems acceptable, or why she laughs when I start crying in front of her because I can't hold it in anymore. But it does suggest that I collect all my money and find a safe place to go. So I wrote my friend into my plan, because if I run away, I'm going to need somewhere to stay. And I know her mom likes me. I am the kind of girl who had perfect attendance in high school, after all. I know that I won't be able to pack up all my things and leave on my own, so I need moral support and stability. I recruit my friend to help me out, and she agrees to let me stay with her until I figure something out. The perfect opportunity opens up in May. My parents are driving to Illinois to pick my brother up from college, now that he's finally graduated. They'll be gone the entire weekend, and I'll be finally have my chance to escape. Saturday night is the big day. I get the biggest suitcase I can find in the basement and drag it to my room. And deciding which clothes I can let myself keep is my worst Libra nightmare. You would think that after making the decision to run away from home, every other choice would be a relief, but it isn't. Even with a giant suitcase, I ended up carrying 10 tote bags at once. You never think about how many things you use and the amount of clothing you wear on a daily basis until you're forced to run away from an arranged marriage. Arranged marriage. This was not a phrase I was familiar with. I always thought it as something that happened to poor girls in other countries. Not me. But here I am, running away from it. I know my mother loves me, that she truly believes that this is the best for me in the long run. But her vision is clouded by her own backwards values. I can't allow myself to be unhappy for her sake. (sighs) Jade and I lug around 50 pounds of luggage, each, across public transportation until we arrive in Queens. It's raining heavily, and each drop is telling me I've made the wrong choice. 
that I'm going to ruin my life and my relationship with my parents. I tell myself that ruining that relationship is the only way they will listen. I left a note, which I painfully wrote in broken Russian on the kitchen table. In it, I try to explain that I love them, that I don't mean to be a bad daughter and break their hearts, but I've simply reached the end of my rope and there's nowhere else for me to go. I last through Saturday night and all of Sunday at my friend's house before I cave. Too much time to think before my parents get home for the weekend, I guess. And now I realize what a mistake I've made. I'm afraid of how my parents will react when they come home and notice I'm not there and see my note and realize what I've done. I imagine their anger and disappointment, and I know I can't do this. No matter how much my mom pressures me or makes me cry, I love her, maybe even against my will. But I do, I love her. No matter how many backhanded compliments and guilt trips, I know she loves me too. I know that's how she shows love. I can't reject her like this. By some miracle, I make it back home before my parents do and manage to put everything back just the way it was before. The suitcase goes back to standing among the other raggedy suitcases in the basement, and my clothes go back to their hangers, with extra wrinkles this time. By the time my parents come home, it's like nothing ever happened. (sighs) Then, next month, I'm sent to Russia. This trip was meant as a punishment more than any other trip that have been before. After months of tearful arguments over how I'm a disappointment and how I'm breaking family tradition, I was finally getting away but I knew it wasn't the type of break I needed. In fact, I didn't even know whether to be glad I could get away from my parents or scared of I was going to Russia by myself. Every year as I got older, I worried more and more that one of these times, they would just leave me there. Considering the last few months, that fear was a very real threat. From the moment I got on the plane, I counted down to when I would be back. My aunt and uncle meet me in the airport in Moscow. And almost immediately, my aunt starts telling me how important it is that I reconnect with my roots. I smile and nod. I can't argue with my aunt the same way that I argue with my mother. I take another plane two days later to Makhachkala, which is getting ready for the festivities that come with the end of Ramadan. I'm here to help my grandmother with the guests she'll be getting for the holidays. (sighs) During this time of year, Makhachkala is just as hot as New York. The city's on the coast of the Caspian Sea, so the humidity is suffocating. Despite the heat, the people are, of course, dressed modestly. All the men look the same. The older men wear linen button-downs and slacks with a newsy cap to complete the look. My grandfather blends in perfectly with them. The younger guys, on the other hand, look like stereotypical Slavs. They wear track pants and slides and chew through a bag of sunflower seeds wherever they go. My mother always said that I had to follow the Makhachkala dress code if I didn't want everyone talking about how unsophisticated I was. My mother always said, no jeans or shorts or sneakers and nothing above the knee. But the girls did wear jeans and sneakers. They almost dressed like the girls in New York. The older women all wore scarves on their heads and long, flowy dresses that hide their figure, a look into the future for my aunts and mother. All the younger women looked dolled up, with perfect makeup and long, straight hair, the opposite of me. I wear my hair short and messy, much to my mother's chagrin. The first time I'd cut my hair, my mom freaked the fuck out. It was the shortest I'd ever cut it, shorn around the sides with the fringe left at the front to hide my forehead acne. What did you do? I don't know why she was so surprised. I literally told her right before I left I was going to cut my hair short. Her hands shoot from my hair, touching and fondling it like she can't believe it's real. 
God, you look like a boy, she said in horror, as if that was the worst thing she could imagine, a girl who looked like a boy. I didn't tell her that that was kind of the point. Every subsequent time I cut my hair, she would ask, Are you a boy or a girl? Or, Do you want to be a boy? Or, You still like boys, right? You're normal, right? I'd say the right things to each of her questions because it's not like I could tell her the truth. A boyfriend was bad enough for her. Imagine if I'd brought home a girl. In Makachkala, it's clear that what kind of woman my mother wants me to look like. To say the least, I stand out, no matter how much I follow the dress code. Most of my days there are spent cleaning my grandmother's apartment and looking after my nephew. He is so much like my brother when he was little, full of raw energy, so much power in his little fists. Most days, I sit around and try to find time to look at my phone without my aunt or grandmother scolding me. And I almost forget why my mother sent me here in the first place. That is, except for once a day when I dutifully message him, per my agreement with my mother. Even though I'm across the globe, I know he is talking to my mother, too. And if that I don't keep in contact with him, she'll find out. We exchange meaningless questions and answer about work and school and other nonsense, but we both know my heart's not into it. Once he even asked me if I actually wanted to talk to him or if I was just being forced. I wanted to tell him the truth, for my sake more than his, but my mother wouldn't like that. So I lied and just told him I'm awkward. In the middle of all the cooking and cleaning I do, my aunt asked me if I want to go visit a cafe in town. I'm skeptical, but I could use a break, so I agree. She makes me wear my nicest dress, put on my most feminine makeup, and wear my prettiest jewelry. Though it seems a little much, we are in Makachkala, and appearance is everything here. So I go along with it. My aunt picks at every strand of hair out of place. She says, I have to look perfect. We don't leave until my aunt is satisfied with how I look. She says I look like a doll, and my stomach turns. I thought I could get away with that kind of talk from my mother, but she and her sister are so alike, it's no surprise they share the same words. The cafe is in the middle of a busy commercial district, but it's completely empty. The decorations are garish and embellished, with bright curtains and pillows decorating the booths. It probably looks much better in the evening when the actual customers are here, I think. But for now, it's just me and my aunt. I slide into a booth, and my aunt slides in right next to me, leaving the bench across from us wide open. The waitress gives us the menu, which doesn't have much actual food, more coffee and desserts. Why did she want to come to this cafe? It's not much different from any other fancy cafe in Makachkala. I order a latte and a fruit cup, the cheapest thing on the menu that won't make me vomit from overwhelming sweetness. As soon as the waitress takes their orders and walks away, another group of people come in. A man and a woman. The woman is older and bigger and looks dolled up like every other woman in the city. The man is young and tall and completely ordinary in every way. I barely notice them at all until, well, what a surprise. Isn't that funny, meeting relatives in a place like this, she says loudly so they can hear. She turns to me and more quietly says, it's pretty common to meet people you know in Makachkala. The way she's speaking makes me feel as though I'm supposed to know who these people are, but I have no idea. They approach our table, and my aunt stands to greet them. She gives the woman a kiss on both cheek, and I do the same. Then she invites them to sit with us, and they slide into the empty bench across. My aunt turns to me again, smiling, and says, What are the chances we would meet them here, huh? I smile back, still confused. I look at their faces, but nothing about them looks familiar. In my confusion, I faintly hear my aunt say the man's name. Oh, it's him. It's what's-his-face. It's Nariman.
throughout our boring conversations every day, he never mentioned anything about this. And it was so obvious, too. My aunt was not subtle at all. This was all a mistake. My mother, from the other side of the world, coordinated with my aunt and not even mine, and even his mother to set up this little coincidental meeting. God, I am such a sucker. I stay silent through most of the conversation, which is mostly filled with my aunt and the woman, his mother, talking about all the people they know in Dagestan. I fiddle around with my ring, and I look down at my hand so I don't have to look him in the face. It's the first time I'm actually seeing him, since I refused to look at his WhatsApp profile photo before. God, he really is unspeakably average. I finished my latte and fruit cup. Now the sweetness is overwhelming and makes me sick. By the time my aunt and everyone's mother wrap up their gossip, I've steeled my face into a smile. I can't call my aunt a liar like I want to, so I just smile all the way home. <sighs> Ramadan finally ends, which means I'm halfway done with this nightmare. The morning of Eid, I wash the floor on my hands and knees and then help my aunt with preparations. Thankfully, my grandmother orders some hinkal and shashlik from a local catering place, like Molos ladies do here for the holidays. This is a set of cooking. When guests start showing up, that's when my work really begins. I spend most of the time serving food and tea and then washing the dishes to get ready for the next crowd. The older you are, the more guests you get, so my grandma is booked all day. Nariman and his mother show up too at the end of the day, the last guests of the evening. Thankfully, I'm too busy to spend much time talking. I avoid eye contact or being near him at all. I didn't mind serving tea to the guests we have all day. It's the same thing I do at home in New York after all. But this time, it's humiliating. It will remind me that this is the life my family wants for me. This is what they think will make me happy. <sighs> Almost immediately after Ramadan ends, I go to stay with my other grandma, my father's mother. It's smooth sailing from here. I just have to deal with my cranky grandma for another week and a half, then I'm out of this hellhole. I visit a few more relatives while I still have time, and I don't actually mind seeing my distant cousins thrice removed, or something, my own age. Even though they speak Russian much better than I do, I can still speak to them about regular girl stuff. School, TV shows, and music. Not arranged marriage, though. <laughs> then, Nariman messages me to ask if I'll have free time in the two days I'll be in Moscow before I leave, and I tell him I'll be busy doing some shopping for birthday presents for my friends. I probably will still have some free time left, but I don't want to open the possibility of seeing him again. In just a few days, I'll be back in New York in the same time zone as my friends, and finally free. The day I leave Makhachkala for Moscow, I'm alone. My aunt and nephew left a few days ago, so it's just my grandmother seeing me off. My uncle comes to pick me up again, and leaves me at his house to look after my cousins while he spends the next ten hours jogging. I sit on their big couches watch badly dubbed American cartoons. Just two more days in Moscow and then I'm going home. Nothing can go wrong now. The next day, my uncle drops me off at my cousin's house with my luggage. Her apartment is a one bedroom for herself, her husband, and her son, and much smaller than my uncle's house with like 10 guest bedrooms. I start to get suspicious, but I ignore it. There's nothing that could go wrong now. When I get there, my aunt is there. What day is it? Doesn't she have to go to work? You know, he's coming to pick you up in a few hours, right? She says, casually, like this is information that I should know, even when no one has told me anything. Fuck. Huh? I ask, confused, thinking maybe if I pretend I don't know what's going on, then nothing will happen. Nariman, he's coming to pick you up in a few hours. 
so we have to get you ready. My eyes are wide, and I make my face stiff to prevent myself from showing how I really feel on my face, to stop myself from screaming the way I want to. I told him that I couldn't meet him today, and he was already plotting behind my back, just like everyone else. They set me up. Again. But now, I'll be alone with this guy, with no one to hide behind. They set me up on a date. My aunt and cousin open up my suitcase and start going through my clothing, picking me out a nice pretty outfit to impress them with. They scramble the organized stack I put my clothes in, and I push down the urge to scream again. They pick out a nice pair of pants that my mother bought, and a nice collared blouse that my mother also bought. I go into the bathroom to change and stare at myself in the mirror. How did I get here? How has my life led me to this moment? How much bad karma have I accumulated for this to happen? The longer I stare at myself, the more control I lose. My face crumbles and caves in on itself, the way it always does when I cry. I've gotten pretty good at crying silently in the bathroom, ever since I was caught by my parents the one time. They had just finished yelling at me because I couldn't get higher than 1850 on my SAT. When they were done, I locked myself in the bathroom as opposed to my room, which didn't even have a lock or even a proper solid door. I sat in a toilet and cried, the ugly sobbing that people don't show to each other. I turned on the faucet to cover up my hitches of breath, but they hurt anyway. When I was done, I went back to my room, and soon after my parents came in. They gathered around me to stroke my hair and pet my back. My mom told me she was sorry that she didn't mean to yell. They love me so much and they just want me to succeed. She kissed my head and asked if I forgave her. And I did. After that, I made sure to be quiet when I cried. I'm a pro at it now. I still make that ugly crying face, but at least no one can hear me. There's nowhere for me to go, though. Nothing for me to do except go along with this. I compose myself, looking into the mirror at my red eyes and trembling lips, and I think, I'm going home tomorrow. I put on the clothing they give. Let my cousin do my makeup and comb my hair back. I put on my new shoes that my mother bought me and new jacket that my mother also bought me. And then I wait. My mother isn't the only one in constant contact with Nariman because my aunt is going back and forth with him, calculating his ETA. God, they are really going to send me off in his car, a guy they barely know. What if he's a serial killer and he kidnaps and murders me? Maybe that will teach them a lesson. Maybe that's better than going on a date with this douche. My aunt takes me to stand outside the apartment with her, eagerly awaiting his arrival. She's more excited about this than I am. He shows up, finally, after we wait in the rain for 20 minutes. He gets out to greet my aunt, because they're practically best friends already, and then I get in his car. It's pretty nice, even though I have no idea what kind of car it is. He must be making decent money in whatever weird engineering job he has. I never paid much attention to his messages, so I didn't actually care. I avoid eye contact, again, instead choosing to stare out the window into the passing scenery of Moscow. It's much cleaner, and there aren't as many skyscrapers here as there are in New York. The people are much more normal here. My mother loves talking about how much better Moscow is, but she just doesn't get it. New York has personality. The pungent smell of fish markets, the green garbage water that gathers in the gutters during summers, even the weirdos yelling at people on the street corner are all part of what makes New York special. She just doesn't see that. <sighs> Nariman makes awkward small talk, like the conversations we had over WhatsApp. I tell him about how different and similar it is in New York. I tell him about the subway and going to school and my language barrier. 
I'm alone with him now, so I have to hold a conversation whether I like it or not. I don't know where he's taking me, a restaurant probably, but I recognize the parts of the neighborhood from my previous trips to the city. He pulls into the parking lot, and he leads me to the entrance of one of the surrounding buildings and up the flight of stairs. God, he's definitely going to kill me. We reach the top of the stairs, and we're in a sushi restaurant. Well, that's nice. At least I get to eat some food I like during this nightmare. It's almost empty in there, even though it's the afternoon. I guess people have better things to do, unlike this guy. Now that we're sitting in a booth, I have no choice but to look at him. Man, he's not even cute. He has the audacity to not even be cute after pursuing a girl seven years younger who lives in a whole other country by talking to her mother. I keep my eyes on the menu for now, so I can avoid looking at him, and because I need time to read all the Russian text on the page. Maybe if he knew I was barely literate in Russian, he would be less interested. I ordered the same thing I usually get. You know, cucumber roll and shrimp temper roll. And some tea to calm my nerves. I could hear my heart pumping heavily. When I pressed my fingertips together, I could feel my heart beat through them. This has to be a fever dream. This could not possibly be real. Feels like I'm having an out-of-body experience. So what do you want to do when you're done with school? He interrupts my spiraling thoughts. The same question every single relative asked me on this trip. I'm not sure, I answer like I do everyone else. I make up something about getting a master's degree and finding some kind of job. I don't say anything about marriage. When we're done eating, we sit over a pot of tea and he pours me a cup, like a true gentleman. I guzzle it down and pour myself another cup. The faster I finish this, the faster I get out of here. He doesn't make it so easy, though. You know... I want to get serious about you and have some kind of relationship. What do you think about that? He asks. Oh, no. I don't know what to say. I look at my teacup, trying to find some answers in the tea leaves. I've never done this before, you know, so I'm just nervous, and I don't think I'm ready for that. And I have school and work to worry about. I just don't have time for anything else. I started the words across, the best excuse I could come up with. He seems to accept that answer, though. I get the feeling that he knows I don't want to be here, and that only makes me more angry, because he went through this whole shitty date anyway. We leave, and I think it's finally over, but he suggests a walk instead of dropping me off. God damn it. I'm shivering violently. July's just begun, but it's 50 degrees outside and raining. That's just what it's like in Moscow all the time. Cold and dreary. We walk through the park nearby, but I can barely hear anything he's saying. I'm shaking too hard to pay attention. My phone vibrates in my back pocket. It's my aunt. I don't want to talk to her, but at least it's a distraction. When are you getting back? You have to go see your grandfather today instead of tomorrow. Okay, we're coming back now. <laughs> Thank God. I tell him I have to get back to go see my grandpa. I had to see him one last time before I left tomorrow. Finally, he starts leading us back to his car. I think he probably feels a little bit bad for me, too, with how hard I'm shivering. I get back into the warmth of the car, and he drives slowly back to my cousin's apartment. When we're right outside her door, he turns to me in the car and says, I got you something. God fucking damn it. He pulls out flowers from the back seat and a little gift bag. I smile stiffly and thank him. Inside the bag is a bottle of perfume and pretty pink packaging. I tell him he didn't have to do that, that I don't need a gift, that I can't give it back anyway. But I know I'm never going to wear it. I enter the code for the apartment and crawl back inside, clutching the flower and myself as my shivering continues. 
my aunt and cousin asked me how it was, and I say it was fine. I'm too tired to go into detail, no matter how much they prod at me. I change into warmer, more comfortable clothes. And when I come back to the kitchen, my aunt is FaceTiming my mother. I'm pretty sure it's 5 a.m. in New York at the moment, but she gets up extra early to check up on me. She asks the same question. I give the same answer. It was fine. Even though I know what my mother is capable of, I still feel like I was stabbed in the back. I remember what she's like when it's just me and her. She loved to pull me to her, bundle me up like she bundles herself up in a blanket. My mom would drag me close to her, my head resting on her chest and my arms around her. We would sit like that on the couch until I tried to get up and her arms would tighten around me and we would both laugh. In those moments, I felt at peace. I felt like my mom did love me. I go to see my grandpa again before I leave. And the next day, I go shopping with my cousin. Before I know it, I'm back in New York. I'm exhausted from the flight and from the entire trip, so I go get ready for bed as soon as I get home. That night, I see a message from Nariman on WhatsApp, and for the first time in months, I don't respond. I think I'll respond tomorrow, and I'm too tired to construct a response right now. Tomorrow, though, I go see a new Spider-Man movie and eat at Shake Shack and tell my friend everything. I still don't respond. The next day, my mom comes to me. She asks me if I've been talking to him, and I tell her the truth. I can't do this anymore, Mom. I don't want to talk to him. It just makes me so uncomfortable, and I don't like doing it, Mom. I hate it, I repeat, for it feels like the hundredth time. I'm too tired to put up with this anymore. She's already made me go on a date with this guy. There's nothing she could say or do now that would be worse. Okay. Okay? That wasn't the response I was expecting. Maybe it was the bags under my eyes or the desperation in my voice. But this time, my mom finally listened. I doubt that would be the end of it, and I know she would bring him up again later. But for now, I'll take what I can get. I want to yell at her, to ask her why she put me through all that when I know she knew that I would hate it. I don't say anything, though, because that would only break the delicate peace we have now. My mom pulls me into her to say goodnight and tells me she loves me. I believe her, even though she lies and manipulates and schemes, even though I know she'll probably pull shit like this again. I believe her, because she is my mom. Wow. <sighs> this piece the two is fantastic. Yeah. It was one of my favorite pieces so far. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here today. Oh, um, no problem. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for sharing this amazing story with us, mm -hmm. and like coming here and and interviewing and being interviewed by us mm -hmm. as well. No problem. Okay. Um, so throughout the piece, you braid multiple stories in showing uh, the juxtaposition between Avar and New York culture, and therefore between your mom's old ways and your new ways. Mm -hmm. There's elements of time, environment, culture, and even a hint of sexuality. Mm -hmm. That being said. Did it surprise you to see girls in Russia dress so similarly to girls in New York, especially because your family was pushing the old ways onto you? Also, can this bit of similarity symbolize the possibility of being able to fuse your family's old ways and your new ways in the future? Uh, that was a complex question. <laughs> so I think with seeing those girls in um, Makachkala, which is like the city where we were, mm -hmm. And, uh, like, seeing them, like, dressed normally, just like any other girl in New York, I think it was more, like, kind of proving that I was right in some way. Because 
like uh, I've been going to Russia for like the last couple of years, and but before that, well, like when I was younger, a few years ago, she would always tell me, you know, you have to dress this way because you have to wear skirts all the time. You can't wear like shorts, whatever. And I think it's as soon as um I kind of hit puberty and I kind of went from a girl to a woman in her eyes. That's when I kind of had to stop. Um, that's when I had to kind of start adhering to those cultural rules because I remember when I was a kid when I was like 12 years old I would be in Kachkalan I would be wearing like shorts and like sneakers and stuff like that and then I can't even remember at what point it kind of changed when I had to you know start dressing differently there yeah but I mean it's I I tell her when I when we're there like mom like these girl and I think some relatives kind of notice that too because she says it all the time and I'm like mom the girls here are dressing in like they're wearing jeans and t-shirts and like sneakers so I'm like I don't know why I have to dress a certain way but you know it's more it's for her it's like like they don't like she uses them as an excuse to kind of control how I dress but they don't actually matter what matters is that I yeah. dress like how she wants and what mm-hmm. the image that she wants me to be mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and it being masked by heritage yeah, yeah. tradition and mm-hmm. how we collective we do things yeah right? yeah and i don't know if it happens to you but i just find it so interesting like in my own family everybody else is perfect except when they're not yeah so like <laughs> if they have something that they want me to do and everybody else is doing it oh look at them look at how they're doing it yeah ex- but my if mom they're doing that something the that they, that that they don't want me to like my yeah. parents don't want me to do then they say they're all gonna you, if they're gonna jump off on a bridge are you gonna follow them yeah. same thing like yeah. i feel like all like all these parents like have like the same like book yeah. book that they're <laughs> using that, right? <laughs> like they say that like i talk about this with my friends too like i have a um another friend like she comes from kind of like a similar a little background like her family's muslim too and we have talk about like how similar like our parents sound all the time yeah. you know I have the same kind of experience with like my friends who are, are brown, basically. Like we could talk to each other and be like, yeah, my parents said this. And they're like, my dad said the exact same <laughs> thing yeah. the other day. Mm-hmm. So later in the piece, you discussed running away from home. Yeah. <laughs> and as a child, I think almost everybody at some point has thought about it for probably minor, but various reasons. Yeah. But for you, the reason was an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. You wrote. You never think about how many things you use and the amount of clothing you wear on a daily basis until you're forced to run away from an arranged marriage. I know my mother loves me, that she truly believes that this is best for me in the long run, but her vision is clouded by her own backwards values. I tell myself that ruining that relationship is the only way they will listen. Do you think that if your parents did find out about you running away, or if you stuck to the plan that maybe they would have understood that an arranged marriage is something that you really don't want? I thought about that so many times since that happened. Like, it's just something I come back to all the time. And it was, like, that time, like, when I was at my friend's house, I was kind of, like, it was, like, turmoil because I kept thinking, like, like what if, like, I, all I could think about was their reaction. And I, like, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the piece, but I texted my brother at, like, it was 9, 10 o'clock clock maybe a little earlier but I texted him because I was like confused I didn't know what to do and I t- um I asked him like because he like um I mentioned like th- he was with them because they went to pick him up from college and right. I asked him 
or I told him like, hey, I ran away from home, by the way. <laughs> um, what do I do? Like, should I, should I stay? Like, do I come back? Like, I'm con- I, I just asked him for yeah. advice. Yeah. Like, like, cause I didn't know what to do. How do I run do. away from home? And it was like weird. <laughs> yeah, it was weird because uh, my, me and my brother, like, we don't really text or call each other at all. Like, we when we're together, like in the same house, when he comes back home, we like you know have we talk and whatever but we don't really kind of go to each other for advice we don't have that kind of relationship but in that moment like I didn't know who else to turn to so I asked him and he's like oh like you should come back right away (laughs) (laughs) like you need to come back now and I'm like okay and I did and it was it was really awkward because I had to ask my friend's mom for money for a taxi because I didn't have any because it was like so silly because I did so much like preparation for running away from home I like thought about everything I'm like okay I'm gonna rent out this P.O. box near school so that I can get mail because my uh, debit card expires in uh, like two months so I have to get my debit card so I can have money (laughs) I just put so much thought into it and then I forgot all my cash at home because I had like a well, I had like a secret stash of cash yeah. and I just forgot it there. So I didn't have any cash with me. And I'm like, God, what a dumbass. <laughs> and I forgot what the co- original question was. Like, I'm like, <laughs> Do you think that that if your parents found out about you running away or if you stuck to the plan that they would have understood? Um, I don't think so, honestly. Like, um, I think I understand now, like the gravity of like w- what running away from home means to them, because my mom constantly like tells me like I can't live I can't like move out like I I have to live with my parents and then I have to move in with my husband when I get married Mm -hmm. and that's it like there's no living with roommates so I know like that kind of like not just like moving out but like running away while they're not there like that would have gotten an intense like very averse reaction Mm -hmm. so like I it was it like the way it worked out was like I got home like maybe an hour before they got home and so I I like I got home and I had to unpack everything and put wow. everything back and put everything back to normal and right after I did that they came home so it like it worked out perfectly somehow yeah. it was karma karma was on my side that day because <laughs> I know oh yeah oh did your brother by any chance bring it back up to you did you have a conversation about it or were you ever worried that maybe he tell them what you did no i know he wouldn't tell anyone because i don't know like it's like you know like solidarity even though yeah. i feel conflicted <laughs> with my brother sometimes because i feel like i get the brunt of the kind mm-hmm. of um like cultural traditional yeah. traditional like stuff from like my, my parent mostly my mom honestly and like I have to, I have to do, all, I have to take care of him. Like she tells me all the time, like you have to take care of your brother. I'm like he's three years older than me. Yeah. He has a job. He's a grown ass adult. Like he he'll be fine. Like he can feed himself. And she's still like, no, he's the man. You have to take care of him. Wow. And I'm like whatever. It's a lot of heart. femmes in this room, and we're all like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're all just yeah. like, yeah. yeah. We relate. Yeah. Unfortunately. Okay, so in this piece, you gave the readers a glimpse of what your mother is like. How demanding she may be with things like your grades or how you dress and especially who you intend to be. Mm-hmm. How is your relationship with your mother now? And does she finally understand that a traditional arranged marriage is something that you wouldn't accept? Um, not really, honestly. I, I, I think it's it's better now because I think like right now there is it's kind of there's like an ebb and flow in our relationship. And right now we're like in a good phase. And then every once in a while. We'll have an argument or, like, a discussion about the thing, and then I'll kind of go back to normal. But it's kind of, 
like it's it's like uh f- like the relationship is kind of in a stasis right now yeah. and i like we have like these discussions where i kind of try to tell her try to explain how i feel about it and she just doesn't really get it like i tell her like uh it's not happening like right and arrange- even my brother says that like my brother is much more like direct about it he's like this is stupid i'm not doing this mm-hmm. and i have to kind of like like kind of talk around it and just like tell her like that um this is not really like what i imagine my life to be right. and mm-hmm. i don't know it's it's like if it's, it's better than it was before but it's still like i mean on an everyday basis like it's fine you know like I, she comes home from work i you know mm-hmm. give her a kiss on the cheek and it's fine yeah well, yeah. yeah so your brother's gonna have an arranged marriage too or um he's in <laughs> he's in Atlanta right now, so he's kind of away from their clutches. Oh. But um, he made it pretty clear that he isn't interested. Like he mm-hmm. says it like very directly multiple like a f- multiple times. He said like I'm not getting an arranged marriage. Right. And I feel like they don't put up. My mom doesn't put up as much as a protest with him as right. she does with me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So with that, maybe you've already touched on this a little bit. <laughs> but what would you like listeners to take away from this story? Hmm. You know, I wasn't really like when I was writing about this, I wasn't really kind of um, kind of writing some sort of underlying message in the story. I was just trying to write about my experience with this kind of type of parenting and with my relationship with my mother. Well, with that, thank you so much again for sharing this piece, for coming in and being interviewed. We really enjoyed your answers. We really enjoyed your story. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This piece is by an author who is choosing to be anonymous. Let's take a listen to this piece entitled Prescription Needed. Tonight on Turner Classic Movies, Gary Cooper plays Alvin York, a marksman drafted in World War I and becomes one of the most celebrated war heroes. This is Sergeant York. I can't remember a time in my life where my dad didn't have a black and white movie on. I never really understood why they were his preference, but in the 20 years I've sat on the couch opposite from him, I've never asked him why. My dad looks at black and white movies the same way a little kid looks at the new superhero movie. He looks at them in admiration. His eyes fixate on the screen and his pupils dilate. His breathing slows down a bit and he barely moves. Occasionally, I'll see him smirk or let out a chuckle. His favorites have always been the military movies. Probably because his grandfather had buddies who were in the Army and Navy. Every now and then, he loves to explain to us how boot camp works. Like he's experienced it himself. They break you down. They make you nothing, he'll say with a stern look on his face while he looks us in the eyes. They do that to build you back up again. They want to wipe the slate clean and mold you into the soldier they want. Maybe that's what he was doing, mimicking the heroes in his movies. Maybe that's why my dad's done a fantastic job at breaking us all down over the years. Me, my brother, and my mom. Trouble is, he never built us back up. Or maybe he had just never got into the building us back up part yet. D. I. M. E. T. R. As much as I like my name, 
it wasn't the easiest to spell when I was in kindergarten. It didn't help that there were like three ways to spell it and they all sounded the same. I remember sitting at the kitchen table, still too small to fit in a normal chair, swinging my legs back and forth as I looked down at the worksheet that was due the next day. Tuesdays weren't the greatest days for anyone in the house. My dad worked all Monday night into Tuesday morning and came home to finish housework. I don't know why, but he had something against taking a break after the graveyard shift. We dread Tuesdays. I would come home from school on Tuesday, and there he'd be, working on something. Making new cabinets for the living room, putting new caulking in the bathroom, spot-painting the staircases. There was always something on his list of things to do. Sometimes he would look over my shoulder while I sat on the kitchen table doing my homework. When I was lucky, he wouldn't say anything. But most of the time, there was something wrong with what I'd done. Come on, I know this. I would think to myself, feeling him behind me. D. I. M. E. T. R. Go on, finish it, my dad would say. From a young age, my father's voice wasn't one of encouragement. It instilled fear. It made my palms sweaty. It would make me tremble. Perhaps worst of all, it would make my mind go blank. Uh, I, I can't remember what letter comes next, I would say quietly, hoping that the softer my voice was, the softer his reaction would be. What the fuck do you mean you don't know what comes next? You don't know how to write your own name? Even in fight or flight mode, my body can't move. You're going to be like one of these dumbasses in class who doesn't know anything? He would yell while erasing what I'd written of my name so far. If you don't write your goddamn name, I swear to God, I'll beat the living shit out of you. And I knew he would. I was still frozen with fear. My shaking hands could barely hold the pencil still. I'm going to sit right here until you figure out how to write your goddamn name. Let's go. It's 1977. Michael Pedalis comes home from Tarpon Springs Elementary School in his hometown of Tampa, Florida. Mm, Grandpa, can you help me with my math homework? Says a young Michael Pedalis while sitting at the kitchen table. Michael was never the best at math. He was quiet in class and never liked to ask questions. If we're being honest, Michael wasn't the best student to begin with. His teachers liked him, but he often didn't do the work. And if he did, it wasn't correct. Michael was more of a recess kid, despite the fact that he wasn't in the best shape. Help? With math? Let me see, his grandfather would say in his thick Greek accent. Michael would slide his fourth grade math book across the table to his grandpa. It's number three, Michael would say. He knew that his grandpa was a tough man. He grew up running errands for the local mafia in the part of Athens. He entered the Greek Navy at 16. He came to America and worked on cargo ships. He fought in Korea. And he was a naval architect, basically an engineer. Not only was Michael's grandpa smart, he was smart and tough. And he also didn't play well with others. Number three, 934 divided by two. Can't figure this shit out. He got up and walked over to Michael with the math book in one hand and his chair in the other. He sat next to him. I learned this when I was like half your age. What do you mean you don't know how to do this? Pick up your pencil. Now Michael was getting nervous. He knew how this would end and regretted asking in the first place. Why did you ask? He thought to himself. 
What do you do first? His grandpa asked. I don't know, Michael said, looking at the math book in front of him. He was hit so hard in the back of the head that his face flew forward and smacked the cold pages in front of him. Don't play dumb with me, boy. Pick your head up. But, 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 I, I, I don't know how to do this. Michael pleaded on the verge of tears. Like hell you don't. Pick up that fucking pencil and start doing your homework. His grandpa screamed even louder. The dogs in the backyard began to bark at the screams coming from the kitchen. But grandpa, why won't you help me? Said Michael softly. Perhaps he wondered if asking soft might elicit a softer response. A calloused hand swiftly connected with the side of Michael's head. It pushed him to the edge of his chair, forcing him to grab the edge of the table to avoid falling. This is shit you should already know, his grandpa screamed. Fucking disgraceful, was the last thing his grandpa said before leaving the kitchen. Michael sat staring at his math book with only two finished problems leaving him with no choice but to hand in unfinished work the next day. Again. I stood by the doorway of the living room watching my dad pace heavily in and out of the room. Every time he went through the doorway, the signs of anger increased. His breathing got heavier. His pace increased. I could see his head constantly shaking, and his eyes fixated on my report card in front of him. My report card. The seventh grade report card was advertised as the important report card. Those were the grades that high schools looked at. What the fuck is this? A D? My dad would say, clenching his teeth. I don't get it. I got you practice books. You do your homework. At least I think you do. What the fuck do I have to do to get your grades up? It was just one D, I wanted to tell him. All the rest were B's and A's. My average was an 88. This was a fluke. An accident. It was because of my test grades and my entire class getting punished for one kid's stupid actions. I just wanted to tell him that sometimes teachers are unfair. I do what I need to for school, but sometimes that just isn't enough. I knew my dad wasn't the best student in school, and I understood why he wanted me to do so well. He wanted me to do better than him. I don't know, Dad. I do my homework, I do the essays and projects, and I do my work in class. I plead with a low voice. Unlike most drill sergeants, this one didn't want you to speak loud and clear. I knew he didn't want to hear me say my test grades were low. I was never good at tests. So I stood there. Son of a bitch, D. You're not going to be able to do anything in life with these grades. You're not going to get into high school and you're definitely not getting into college, he yelled while walking closer to me. An idiot could pass fucking middle school. You're going to end up being a bum in the streets because you can't fucking do the work. He's only acting like this because his wife isn't home to put him in his place. But then again, he would just yell and tell her that this was unacceptable and that she defended me too much and she shouldn't get involved. Like always in high-stress situations, my body instinctively starts to shake. It probably wants me to run, but I can't. My dad finally stands in front of me, looking me in the eyes. He knows I'm lying about why my grades are low, but he doesn't give me a choice. You better get these grades up or I swear to God I will beat the living shit out of you. Get out of my face, he says while clenching his teeth. But as I turn to leave, I see his arm move towards me. I was never a kid to start problems in school. I never got in a fight, so I didn't know what it felt like to be winded. Till then. I found out what that felt like when my dad's fist connected with my gut as I got up to leave. 
I dropped to the floor and then got on my hands and knees. I focused on the pain in my abdomen before I realized I couldn't breathe in. The only thing my body allowed me to do was make a deep groaning noise. That's when the real panic settled in. I didn't know any better. I thought that he had hit me too hard and I was on the edge of death. As I struggled to breathe, I saw my dad in the kitchen from the corner of my eye. But I kept my head down to avoid making eye contact with him. Come on, get up, I heard from the kitchen. As I'm slowly able to take shallow breaths, I find the strength to stand up. My dad isn't looking at me and goes to make his way upstairs to his room. I can hear him talking to himself again. I can't make out exactly what he's saying, but I know it's about me. He glances over at me, back on my feet at the doorway. I manage to hear him say stupid shit again before he walks away. I've managed to start breathing normally now. I should be angry, but I'm not. Am I disappointed in myself? No, that's not it. Am I disappointed at my dad? Nope. I know that I should be feeling something, but I just feel numb. You're lucky you didn't get the belt like I used to, I hear from the staircase before the voice disappears upstairs. <sighs> Go on, Michael, you know what to do, Michael's mom said from behind him. It's December of 1981. Michael Pedalis is now living in Jackson Heights, New York, and goes to middle school nearby at IS-10. His brother and sister are still in Florida with his grandparents. It's just him and his mom. Michael walked up to the house, rings the doorbell, and patiently waited. It's cold, and he's been outside all day. He can help shaking with the cold wind hitting him, but he didn't have a choice. His mom made him go out with her. The front door opened, and a frail old woman with white curls and a heavy black coat on greeted Michael with a smile. Michael picked up his book and started, We wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas. At the end of the song, the old woman clapped, and handed Michael a folded $5 bill. Thank you, Merry Christmas, said Michael before walking away. He made it to the sidewalk and handed the bill over to his mom. They started making their way over to the next house. Michael didn't know how long he's been out doing this, but it's been long enough for him to become annoyed. Why are you keeping the money again? Michael asked his mother while shoving his hands in his pockets. Because, Mike, I need it, his mother replied plainly. Michael knew what that meant. Her friends were coming over later, which meant she needed the money for weed, and this was the quickest way for her to get it. How many more houses do I have to do for this? I've done like ten already, Michael thought as they approached the next house. Michael can help but wonder if there were any other kids who had to do things like this, who go out all day in freezing weather to help their mom, who leave the rest of their family behind, have to take care of the entire house. He didn't see any of them out there doing this, but maybe they're worth somewhere. E-S-C-I-T-A-L-O-P-R-A-M. I searched with my phone in one hand and the half-empty orange bottle in the other. Acetyloprum. Selective serotonin reputake inhibitor. It can treat depression and generalized anxiety disorder. Prescription needed. I read silently while moving my lips to see if it's the right bottle. It is. I place my phone down, open the bottle, and slowly let the pills into my hand. I count how many there are. Ten. That should be good for the week. I let the pills fall into the pocket of my hoodie and put the cap back on the bottle. 
I place the bottle back on the shelf of my dad's medicine cabinet, carefully, so he doesn't hear the pills rattling inside. I quickly pick up the next half-empty bottle and open a new tab on my phone. M-E-T-H-Y-L-P-H-E-N-I-D-A-T-E. Search. Mesylphenidate. Stimulant. It can treat ADHD and narcolepsy. Controlled substance can cause rapid or irregular heartbeat, delirium, panic, psychosis, and heart failure. Prescription needed. I open the bottle and let more pills spill into my hand. Ten. I let them fall into the pocket of my hoodie. I slowly cap the bottle and put it back on the shelf. The hinges of the cabinet are rusty, so I have to make sure they don't squeak when I close it. I manage to avoid the squeaking and leave the bathroom as if no one was there. My dad is still downstairs with my mom. He hasn't gotten suspicious yet. (sighs) I had heard my dad make jokes about his happy pills every now and then. I figured they were just prescription stuff, the same stuff my little brother takes. I wanted to see if he had any left. My adjustment to college, working, and a recent breakup left me in a bad place. My relationship with my parents has deteriorated over the years. I burned every bridge I made in high school, and I haven't made any college friends. This was my best and only option. I walk downstairs where my parents are in the kitchen cooking. The sizzling from the pans completely masks any incoming sound. Did you turn off the printer? My dad asks without looking away from the stove. Yep, I reply while walking into my room and shutting the door. It's July of 1987. Michael Pedalis just graduated from William Cullen Bryant High School in Long Island City, and still lived with his mom in Jackson Heights. But now he had the company of his little brother, Chris, little sister, Evelyn, and his stepfather, George. Michael had been working at an electronics store, The Wiz, throughout his senior year of high school, while his mom and George were busy running a successful contracting company. Michael got home late from work one night after closing shift, As usual, his mom and George were up looking over blueprints at the dining room table. George was good at what he did. He had his work in Architectural Digest and did lots of work on celebrity apartments in Manhattan. Hey guys, Michael said as he walked in the house, dropping his book bag on the couch. No reply. Like most teenagers working retail, Michael was getting paid minimum wage. With his first semester at Pace University starting soon, minimum wage wasn't enough to pay for tuition which left him with one option. Hey guys, Michael repeated while he slowly paced towards the dining room table. Don't mean to bother you, but I have a question. What is it, Michael? His mother asked without looking up from the blueprints and scattered papers across the table. Um, the bursar at Pace needs the money for the semester soon, Michael said, standing at the end of the table, back straight with his hands behind his back, military salute style. So pay for it. You have a job. His mother interrupted before Michael could continue. Michael knew this was a dead-end conversation, but he had to try. Um, but that's the thing. I don't have enough, and the financial aid office says that they can't help me because they know that you guys have money in the bank, he said, trying to keep himself calm. His mother finally glanced up at him, then to George, then to Michael. Take out a loan, she said after contemplating the situation. Michael didn't want to take out a loan. He didn't want to go into debt, especially since he knew his stepfather had enough money to pay for his undergrad, his master's, and his PhD. But 
Michael stammered. No buts, Michael. I can't just give you money whenever you feel like it, his mother interrupted. Michael was frustrated, to say the least. He didn't like to ask his mom for help, mainly because she never helped anyway. But this time, he really needed it. Michael spent his entirety of high school following the same routine. Walk to school in the morning, walk home, clean the house, do anything else his mother told him to do. And if he was lucky, he got some time to do some homework. It's no wonder he joined after-school clubs and teams. He didn't want to be home. I never ask you for anything, Mom, Michael interrupted back. You're the one taking all these trips to Paris and buying your clothes from Fifth Avenue. You trust Evelyn and Chris with your credit card, but you can't help me out this one time? Silence. Michael was getting on his mother's nerves, and he knew it. How much is it, Michael? His mother asked, practically gritting her teeth. It's about 3000 for the year, he said quieter than before. Michael didn't like pushing his mother's buttons, but he had to. He wasn't sure if his mom liked him or not. She said she loved him, but action spoke louder than words. His mother looked at George, who was still looking at the blueprints, and let out a loud sigh. If I give it to you, will you shut up about it? Yes, Mom, Michael said without hesitation. He looked his mother in the eyes, but didn't see any care or sympathy in them. He saw frustration. With nothing else left to say, he left the dining room, and the house went back to silence. Sivastri, I hear my dad call while stomping down the stairs. I sit on the couch with my laptop, finishing my paper for my political science class. The Adderall was still in my system, so nothing was taking my focus away from the screen in front of me. What is it? I hear my mom answer back from the kitchen. My dad reaches the bottom of the staircase, and I can hear his teeth are clenched again. At the time, I don't expect him to be mad at me. He doesn't have a reason to. I was getting A's in my classes and working part-time, just like he wanted me to. But as he gets closer to my mom, I see him hold up an orange bottle, one of the many in his medicine cabinet. I filled a script two weeks ago. There's 30 pills missing. My fingers stopped typing. Shit. Are you sure, Mike? I hear the concern in my mom's voice. Yes, I'm sure. He refilled it for 90 pills. Now there's only 60, my dad complained. How many did I take in two weeks? I asked myself while pretending to type my essay. If I took 30 in the past two weeks... That's just Adderall. That's excluding whatever I took from my brother's bottle. How many did I fucking take? I got comfortable with my routine and left a trail. A really bad trail. I knew my dad had two spare bottles of stuff in his closet. I should have taken from the other bottles and filled the bottle in the medicine cabinet. My dad takes heavy steps on his way to the living room. The pills rattle with each step. There was no good outcome in this situation. It's fine. What can I say that won't get me killed? Pills spilled down the sink by accident? Nope. Sold the pills for extra cash? Nope. My dad has one foot through the door at this point. I know not to look up until he's called me out, or at least until he's in the room with me. I don't know whether to play this smart or tough. Either way, I'm screwed. Come clean and tell him it's his fault that I'm unstable in every sense of the word? Nope. Say I don't know? Fuck it. Without looking up, I can tell he's in the room staring at me. D, my dad bellows. His voice almost echoes in the room, muting any surrounding noises. I'm missing 30 pills. You know anything? I lift my head from my screen and see my dad at the doorway of the living room, clutching the orange bottle in his hand. A quarter of the bottle is missing. I got carried away. I breathe in a bit, 
and pull out my amateur acting skills. I scrunch my face up and make my eyebrows cave into the most confused look I can. No? I say while shaking my head. Haven't touched your stuff. Blatant lie. I get an uneasy feeling in my stomach, and I realize I'm breathing heavily and probably blinking too much. He fucking knows, I tell myself. My eyes meet his from across the room. He knows I'm lying. My brother has his own pills, and my mom doesn't touch his pills. I'm the only suspect. The question is, what'll he do about it? He shifts the bottle in his hand a bit without taking his eyes off me. A standoff? What, are we supposed to pull out revolvers at the count of three or something? Like one of his black and white John Wayne westerns? My dad simply looks at the bottle again and back at me, but his expression changes. He goes from a look of anger and rage to a look of pity and concern. Or does he just feel bad that some of his pills that he hoards are gone? He takes a deep breath, nods, and says the one thing I don't see coming. He says, okay. And he walks away and back upstairs to his room. This wasn't normal for my dad. He was a man of anger. He was bitter. But what if he finally understood the repercussions of his actions? <laughs> I spent the entirety of high school going back and forth from school and then locking myself in my room. I spoke less and less to my father as the years went on, and he didn't like that. I joined the volleyball team to avoid my father, which worked very well. And when I finally found a group of people that felt the same way as me and a space that made me feel happy... He stopped me from going every chance he could get. And then he wonders why I'm the way I am. <laughs> As I watch him watch Sergeant York, I wonder if he ever thinks about what his family put him through. He was constantly put down, made fun of, and used. And it shows. He doesn't like to talk about his family, but over the years he's told me his fair share of stories at the dinner table about his grandpa and grandma who used to beat the shit out of me for everything. About his mom, who only gave a shit about herself and left me to take care of her and the house. He didn't like to talk about his dad that left him when he was a kid. I understood why. Every story ended the same way, with my dad clenching his teeth and cursing to himself. I wonder why he loves Sergeant York so much. If these movies make him feel like there are good guys and bad guys and everything is clear like that. Like, it's literally black and white and not complicated. My mom likes to say... People either become their parents or they learn from them. But what if it's both? What if it's not black and white? I've sat through most of the movie and my dad hasn't looked in my direction once. Thought maybe he'd like some company, but he doesn't notice I'm there, and I hate these war movies. So I decide to just go. Folks say you're no good except for fighting and hell-raising. The character on the screen challenges Sergeant York. Wow, that took us on a journey, huh? It really did. Yeah. It was a pull back and forth between father and son and their stories together. It was really yeah. great. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so firstly, what did you all think about how this piece was structured um, in this reflective format of seeing how the author's father treats him and how the author's father was treated like himself? I mean, in that same aspect, you kind of see this kind of like cycle of abuse mm -hmm. that like you hear about a lot where it's like the parent was abused as a child. And uh, honestly, that's like the only way that some people know how to how to handle children or yeah. like work with mm -hmm. children. So they think that that is kind of like the, the proper and the appropriate way to get a child, quote unquote, back on track, yeah. mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, especially in like certain cultures, you could see that a lot. So 
that's kind of something that's settled with me in this piece mm-hmm. in the aspect of like i see this happen you know yeah like, um in my church community and stuff most of them are immigrants so you would see these kind of aspects of like the only way to handle children is to not necessarily abuse them but put them back on track right mm-hmm. and it's not just abuse per, per se in their point of view it's just doing what they know yeah it's doing exactly what they know or in some cases a lighter version of what they know mm-hmm. and then they think it's not so bad or it's not that bad yeah. as they had it mm-hmm. i hate that is like you're lucky it's just this like or it's just this banking etc right. when Whereas, i was like, a child yeah, i yeah. used to <laughs> for sure i yeah. was I don't know, like uh, hung yeah. from a tree by my feet or something ridiculous. <laughs> right. That and and that's think, kind of you think you're joking, but you're not. I mean, he even said it in the piece yeah. where the father had the scene, and the father said something along the lines like, "You're lucky you're not getting the yeah. belt." Yeah. Right after he like punches him in the gut. Yeah. yeah. That scene was visceral. That scene was that scene was intense. Yeah. It really was. It, yeah, so I really appreciated the way the author um, structured the story, how it's back and forth and vignettes showing what he went through and what his father went through. And it's just a nice mirroring of, as was said before, the cycle of abuse. Yeah. Um, going off of that, there is a lot of abuse that children go through, and especially in this story, the abuse of the author and even his father. Mm-hmm. So one of the main things that the author touched on was how his mom constantly said things like, People either become their parents or they learn from them. But the author, though, thought that things aren't so black and white. It's never that clear. There's always some kind of gray area. Mm-hmm. So what do you guys think? Do we become our parents or is there a gray area? What is that like for you guys? I feel like it's difficult for there not to be both. Right. I feel like everyone, especially even people that like want to be the opposite of their parents, that like my parents were horrible. I'm going to be completely different from them. Mm-hmm. There's always parts of your parents right. that are in there. Yeah, <laughs> no, always, always. Like it's it's something that's kind of inevitable, mm-hmm. and you kind of get to a point in life. I'm talking like I'm 80, but <laughs> like you get to a point where you have to analyze that part of yourself, right? And be like, okay, this is definitely like my parent, mm-hmm. and you can kind of like analyze and really work at changing that if it's something negative. Or you can acknowledge it as like, okay, this is just something that is so ingrained <laughs> and a part of me that I'm probably not going to get it out, I guess. Right. So you work on 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 honing that or channeling that in a, in a different direction, if that makes sense. It does. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's interesting the way, like, we have to be not only aware of how we emulate our parents and have to struggle against that, but also the way we kind of watch our parents emulate their parents or mm-hmm. our grandparents because I think like I know personally like I see sometimes like my mom acts like my grandmother and I tell her that Same, and yeah. I see and uh, like I also see myself acting like my mom mm-hmm. so it's kind of like through generations this kind of like behavior that is kind of ingrained into you know the culture the family and you know having to struggle with that constantly not just like maybe necessarily like in a bad way like we have to always kind of go against what um our parents are like but you know it's uh kind of nuanced yeah. mm-hmm. um my mom actually she was raised I mean, by my grandmother and um in my family there's this uh kind of like pressure to always look the best like mm-hmm. we will be three hours late to an event because everyone <laughs> in the family has to look the best Can and I my grandmother family 
<laughs> like my grandmother looks like my mom. People really think that. So my mom, um, in her forties, recently just realized like how damaging that kind of behavior was to everyone in the family, not mm-hmm. just my mom, not my aunt, you know, my cousin. All of us were like kind not traumatized, but like it was very um hard to always try to look the best and now my mom realizes like oh this is this isn't right like I had and she has to go to therapy for it too Mm -hmm. so I mean I guess that's the gray area like you are like your mother or your parents and then later in life you kind of have to realize or learn from your actions and their actions and try to just be better because in this story we even see the author's father like specifically say like like what we talked about before like my grandparent or my parents speaking as the author's father my parents were horrible they did this that and the third not acknowledging that he was kind of like bringing his his son in the same exact place Mm -hmm. and we see that towards the end that moment of just like holding the pills and being like and that reflective moment of wow i drove my son to this like not just because I wasn't beating him as severely as my parents did doesn't mean that he's like not going through some immense struggles because of my treatment of him basically so to close off since we are part of the audience in this one uh what have you all taken away from this story I I mean there's a lot to take away from the story in terms of like the intergenerational kind of effects of each other we see a little bit of it from the parents and then from the child and then the child the parent as a child Mm -hmm. dealing with the with the parent with the grandparents in that respect and I feel like that's something that we need to like remember that there is there's a person but then there's people behind the person there's a history there where it's like it's not just you it's you and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents because it's being passed down. No matter how far you want to be like, no, I'm nothing like that. No, I'm never going to be like that. But if you live that and you grew up with that and you're in that, you really, not yeah. that you don't have a choice, but in the aspect of like you have to acknowledge that of yourself mm-hmm. if you want to have some forward motion. Mm-hmm. Right. For healing. Like, for like the, ultimately this story is about abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about... Just because I, I feel like there's a kind of different tint to it because it's parental mm-hmm. or it's like talking about parents. But this this story is about abuse. Yeah. Um, and I think acknowledging that part, that that is extremely problematic, that our view of parents, of, of people in our family as like just wanting to do right by us and... Um, you know, my parents hit me and I turned out fine. No, you're yeah. not fine. Like, I, I have <laughs> news for you. You're not yeah. fine. Yeah. No one's fine. But acknowledging that part of you that, okay, if you're you are free to, to, to go forward and heal from this and acknowledging that is part of it. And I think it even goes from what Amanda was saying with her parents and stuff. It doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah. That can still be part of you. And you could always take a chance to say, hey, this was something that happened to me when I was a kid. And I want it to change. I want something new to happen here. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You could be how forties. You could be in yeah, your forties. Like you could be in your fifties. You could be. You could be even like on your deathbed, and you're saying to yourself, "There's things that need to change." You can still change them. I think that is like an important thing to take away. And it kind of sucks that the pressure is on like those who are victimized to like change, take that, mm-hmm. and go for it. And but it's 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 something that when it is generational, like this author's father did not take 
the trauma of his past and move forward with it in a way that was constructive to the people that he is impacting the most in the world. Right. And I feel like this author, to to write this piece and acknowledge it, is hopefully a turning point in that generationally. And, you know, um, when you have kids, from what my mother told me, because I don't have kids, <laughs> um, you usually bring your trauma onto your kids. And it's so important for me, and I, I'm assuming for a lot of people, to try to figure, um, try to heal from whatever we've been through mm-hmm. so that moving forward in the future, like, if I have kids, I won't do that to them. Like, I won't ab- abuse or not abuse, but, like, put my problems onto them. Right. Going off of what Amanda just said, one thing that I thought was really important was for my future self, if I do have children, I also need to acknowledge that they have their own issues and their issues weren't my issues. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's something that um, the author brought up about like his growing up and how he struggled with certain things that his dad never struggled mm-hmm. with. And you have to really recognize that children are going to struggle and going to have their own issues, but they're never going to be the same as yours. So I think it's really important that you recognize for future reference too, not only reflecting upon yourself about your own um, like traits from your parents, but also reflecting that, hey, this person might be going through something totally different from what I went through. And that's okay, but we need to recognize that as well. And with that, thank you all for engaging in this discussion and for the author for sharing this piece with us. That concludes our seventh episode of the fourth season, Old World, New Ways. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, and our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night!